I'm G4, and you're listening to the Beginner's Guide to Model Railroading for now, the exuberantly opinionated atlas of the basic techniques for the world's greatest hobby. This is BGT Episode 21, Scenery Part 2, Petosphere Part 1, Dirt and Foliage. In this episode, I'll cover how to add dirt, grass, and bushes to transform your layout from a plywood, plaster, and pacific into something that actually begins to look remotely alive. Security, 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 presentation announcement. After the incredible reception my tripartite presentation series received last year at Pittsburgh and Dallas, and courtesy of the extremely kind testimony by Lionel Strang, I am returning to the Amherst Railway Society's Railroad Hobby Show in Springfield, Massachusetts to present the remaining two clinics at the venue, Part 1, Modeling Modern Transit, and Part 3, Proto-Freelancing in the Wrong Direction, both at 10.30 in the Young Clinic Room on Saturday, January 27th and Sunday, January 28th, respectively. As always, if you cannot attend the show in person, you can access all three clinics on the podcast website, bgtmrring.org. Or alternatively, Bravo Golf Tango, Michael Romeo Romeo, Indigo November Golf, dot Oscar Romeo Golf. But if you are there, please do be sure to stop by my clinics or the A Modeler's Life booth and festivities and be sure to say hi. All right, proto-future news aside, back to BGT. Wow! It's been a long time since I've written a BGT episode. <laughs> I've gone through spats of writing, but plus spats of railroad history, spats of apathy, and spats of modern transit evangelism, and I get to coast for very long periods of time without ever actually having to think about beginner techniques. Moreover, with my recent PFP-induced transition to monthly, this is the first time I've had to take a partially written script and split it in half into two episodes to keep up with production deadlines. I'll be covering trees, roads, and ballasting in the next full BGT episode, but rest assured there's still about ten pages of material to go over here. In a break from tradition, for all the reasons aforementioned, it has actually been quite a while since I've attempted the techniques discussed herewith, and I'm no longer writing from direct recent experience. So if it happens that I've missed an important subject or technique, please do feel free to email me at bgtmring at gmail.com, and I'll tack it into a future episode. That all being said, though, we're about to enter some very fun aspects of model railroading. Heretofore, you've been engaged in very mechanical, technical, and meticulous aspects of modeling, where you swing around plywood and meld together molten metal until the choo-choos run smoothly. But now, finally, after all this effort, you get to make trains run through the gorgeous scenery you've been imagining all along. If I haven't mentioned it enough, I'll reiterate it here. Now is the time when you should have your trains running smoothly. If you've yet to achieve this already, focus your efforts on that. If you're desperate to have scenery, make it, but far away from wherever the problems are. If derailments plague you at any point during construction, please do rip it up and relay the track to avoid problematic areas on your layout, no matter how much effort awaits you betwixt demolition and reconstruction. The reason why I emphasize this so much is because this is the point beyond which track quality will only go down. We're dealing with glues, stains, and small particulates which will weasel their way into whatever track arrangement you have. If you have areas of spotty electrical connection, it will only get spottier. If you have a turnout prone to derailment, it will only derail more. If you have anything in need of replacement, you will only need to tear up more of your hard work in order to redo it. I hope I've impugned upon you the importance of laying track right the first time, but this 
Well, it isn't the point of no return, but it's the point of more difficult return. While it may not be as aesthetic or fun, now's the time to make sure your house is in order before you do anything else. So, with that sufficiently ominous forbearance, where do we begin? At the end of the last episode, you had a winter wonderland of pale white plaster with a few outcroppings of colored rocks here and there. After a brief pause to take as many winter holiday photos as you can, seriously, a simple pipe brush evergreen and a few silver beads and some glued-on colored twine make a magical Ramadan gymnosperm, you may be wondering what's next. The first step I take in making model railroad scenery is a somewhat unpopular one, but I think it to be cheap, easy, and a very quick result. What I advocate is to use some sort of brownish stain on all of your plaster, hydrocal, or sculptomold, whatever you've used. Some prefer to use ground stain from Woodland Scenics, some use straight-up brown shoe polish, and pretty much anything will do. The point is to sponge some watery, dirt-colored concentrate onto all of your plaster hills. While this is hardly a necessary step on the trek to realism, it does have a few concrete benefits. First, it colors all of the plaster brownish, such that if it's later dinged by a dropped tool or a scrape or a stray elbow here or there, it doesn't create a snow-white plaster gash in the landscape, giving away an immediate betrayal of, this shouldn't be this way. Secondly, since the dyes are usually quite fluid, they tend to flow and pool as they would in real-world hydrology, and this can later inform you as to where to put mud, marshes, bogs, runoff, what have you. Thirdly, in a single evening, maybe two, you can take your entire railroad from a winter wonderland to a roughed-in depiction of the railroadscape you've been dreaming of all along. For very little effort, it is very emotionally satisfying to see your layout room transformed from an industrial and unattractive home project into a literal watercolored depiction of what you're attempting to build. Once you've completed ground staining your terrain, it's now time to actually make it look like dirt. A traditional way to do this is called zip texture, which works by mixing Crayola pigments into regular plaster to make it dirt-colored. Uniquely, much like the terrain phase, the plaster component allows you to apply and affix the dirt mimetic simply by spraying water, either before, after, or during the application, leaving you with a hard shell of dirt-colored scenery. Among other things, this makes it extremely easy to apply dirt to steep surfaces, but conversely this can also result in dirt clinging to an otherwise unrealistic steep surface. Instead, I'd advocate that if you have dirt falling away from a surface due to verticality, you should replace that segment of the hillside with a rock outcropping, as that would be significantly more geologically realistic. Also, getting the color right can sometimes be a little difficult. While it's easy to achieve a reasonable brownish color, it's often too uniform and pale to actually look like real dirt. Even if you've got the dirt color right, there may be leftover unrealistic balls of undissolved pigment dotting your landscape. Overall, zip texture is a fine technique, but in my opinion not a great one. As you may instead infer, I personally prefer to use real dirt. Among other things, nothing beats the color. If you're modeling a prototypical location, a single vacation and a single 5-gallon bucket should last you years of modeling, and no one could ever complain, that's not the right color for the area, because it literally is the color from the area. If you're proto-freelancing, you can pick dirt from the place you wish your railroad was. If you're straight-up freelancing, well, nothing is as simple as going into your backyard or a nearby park or an industrial plot that nobody would ever care about. But I will say, there definitely is something quite satisfying to building a prototypical model and covering it in actual dirt from the actual prototype scene, building your layout out of the same materials as the real thing. Once you've retrieved your dirt, though, you have to process it. 
Dirt is, in fact, full of many things that are problematic for modeling, not the least of which being water, live organisms, detritus, and straight-up garbage. You should start by sifting all of your dirt into a baking pan. A simple flour sifter will do. If you have a root, twig, or rock of sufficiently charismatic miniature modeling character, set it aside for later use. Bugs, worms, glass, and other trash elements, however, should probably be removed from the mix. When your dirt is adequately sifted, it's time to dry it. Take the dirt pan and stick it in the oven on the lowest setting for at least 8 hours, or until it's entirely dried out through its interior. When you return home from a day of work, your place will smell of what can only be described as rancid petrichor, but you will have a few vats of the most authentic dirt available for modeling. It's especially important to do the drying step because many microbial organisms live within dirt and subsist on, among other things, water. If you don't kill them off sufficiently, then they may infect your model railroad and lead to unoptimal results. Check the dirt to make sure it's dried all the way through, and if it is, put it away for eventual use in a bucket with a secure lid. A single gallon will last you much, much longer than you expect, so don't go overboard with quantity. Before applying the dirt to your layout, make sure the area is well prepared by taping over your track or any other important infrastructure you wouldn't want mucked up with a layer of masking tape, much as you did for applying plaster. An important note, while it is tempting to undirtify your entire layout surface, this usually goes less well for building bases, as it can undulate and make them cant crookedly to one side, or just otherwise be an unstable particulate surface prone to shifting or decay. So, keep the dirt away from anywhere that a building is going, and bring the dirt to the foundations later in the detailing phase once the buildings are satisfactorily affixed in place. I'll cover this more in a future episode. Actually applying the dirt is deceptively simple. Once again, take your sifter, or even just a spoon, scoop up a sufficient portion, and gently sift it onto a one or two square decimeter working area at a time. Once the dirt is down to your satisfaction, use a spray bottle to gently mist the dirt with isopropyl alcohol. Alternatively, you can use quote-unquote wet water or tap water with a few drops of dish detergent in it. Both of these are amphiphilic, meaning that they have both hydrophilic and hydrophobic molecular moieties, and they will help break the surface tension of the glue such that it won't disturb the dirt too much once the glue is applied. Don't apply too much isopropyl alcohol as to make it sopping wet, but it should be visibly damp. Additionally, don't work in areas so large that the isopropanol evaporates before you can actually get to gluing the dirt. In general, isopropanol evaporates faster than wet water, thus wet water has a longer working time for gluing the dirt, but the isopropanol dries faster once the glue is down. Practice this a few times and use your judgment. Incidentally, if you have a patch of plaster that is too vertical for the dirt to stick onto, much as with zip texture, you can pre-wet the ground with isopropanol or wet water to give it some stick, and then you can blow dirt through a folded piece of paper onto the more vertical surface. This is a useful technique for the odd hillside here or there, but again I'd caution over using it since, as aforementioned, surfaces would in reality be very rapidly eroded away, and a much more realistic option is to cast a rock shelf outcropping on the too steep ground instead of forcing the dirt to go where it doesn't want to. Now enters a friend with which you will soon become intimately familiar, matte medium. Matte medium is basically the gluey stuff that makes paint stick once the vector has dried up. Think of it as kind of a, a liquid state artist's gesso. Many modelers have their own recipes, some are as complex as diluting actual matte medium from craft stores with additives, and some are as simple as a 50-50 mixture of water and regular school white glue. But, and it pains me to say this for how expensive it is, 
I've usually found that the best products are actually the ones in the scenery section aimed specifically at the modeling hobbies. They usually have the best flow and dry the most securely and transparently. I will save you a bit of money though. Most model scenery suppliers, I'm looking at you, Woodland Scenics, will try to sell you a spray bottle for the matte medium. Don't buy one. Since matte medium is basically liquid glue, it will always clog up the nozzle, and even when it doesn't, the fluidity of the matte medium is not one such as to accommodate atomization, and it will usually dribble and splash out of the bottle like you forgot to mix in Viagra. Instead, the preferred technique for applying matte medium to fix your dirt in place is the admittedly laborious use of an eyedropper or squishy plastic transfer pipette. With your dirt still damp from the isopropanol, pick a higher up area of the dirt and begin gently pipetting the matte medium onto the dirt. Continue until all of the dirt is visibly paled, then move on to the next area. Working from top to bottom, the flow of the matte medium should spread downhill and your task should quicken with time. Once you're done gluing the dirt, let it dry overnight, and voila! Your layout is now dirty. A few more notes on the process. Occasionally, the matte medium is put on too thick and it rivers up and flows the dirt down a miniature stream, or pools in a miniature bog. While your initial reaction might be to avoid this, that might not be necessary. In real hydrology, there are innumerable mini-washes dotting the landscape, and these terrain features are distressingly uncommon on model railroads. Instead, I advocate that you let the dirt and liquid do their thing and preserve these beautiful microgeological processes for added realism. Just make sure that the dirt doesn't flow so much as to reveal the bright bare plaster underneath. If you've ground stained your layout, this shouldn't be a problem, and if not, eh, you can simply go over it later with another layer of dirt. Additionally, real dirt can be used as your friend to cover up undesirable layout edges, creases, and gaps. Unless you're uncommonly thorough in your plastering, there will usually be a few unsightly construction artifacts left over, such as lines between foam layers, gaps between landscape and subroadbed, or full-on joints between modules. In such cases as this, you can easily pile on a layer of dirt to smooth over these unsightly features and better hide the making of the sausage. I especially like dirt for module joints, as if you uniformly sift over a joint, wet, glue, and dry the dirt, then separate the modules again, the dirt will usually break apart in a randomized sawtooth pattern, which, when the modules are rejoined, can actually do much to obscure the docking plane. This is obviously not a universal concern, so standardized club modules would not benefit from this, but this would be ideal for semi-transportable sectional shelf layout or smaller portions of a larger multi-module set, say in a Fremo standard layout. And if the dirt doesn't fit again properly, you can just smash it with the corner of your smartphone case and refill the gap. It's literally dirt cheap. Finally, you can also vary dirt texture to your advantage. Once you've oven sterilized your dirt, you can take a portion of it and sift it through a very fine mesh, such as through pantyhose. Store the subsequent fine dirt in an airtight container, as it is very dusty and will aerosolize very rapidly, but also set aside the sediment for coarser material. Both of them can be of use later. The fine dirt can be useful for representing clays or compacted dirt, such as in the ruts of a dirt road, to be discussed more next time. For the aforementioned rivulets, anywhere that the dirt washed out to reveal plaster below, you can cover the plaster with the fine dirt, making it look like a sublayer of clay. Anywhere there is a road or footpath, you can gently deliver by spoon a layer of fine dust on the compaction points. Anywhere there is a particularly vertical segment of dirt leading up to a rocky cliff, sift a little dust into the area to represent the clay too tough to have been weathered away yet. Conversely, the coarse dirt can represent a gravelly-type terrain. This can usually be seen in a riverbed or at the base of a vertical or steep slope, as the small rocks, once weathered out of the dirt, roll to the bottom or flow downstream. Especially when mixed with rocky talus, this can be a particularly convincing depiction of scenery. 
Now, dirting every inch of your layout is, I will fully admit, a very labor-intensive process. So if you wish to skip this step, you can go back a step to ground staining, but doing this makes it significantly more difficult to match the color and texture of actual dirt, and we usually tend to over or underestimate the darkness of the color. If you intend to use only ground stain, work from a photograph to try and match reality, but you will most often be exceptionally surprised at how little dirt is obscured by grass, especially in forests, so it behooves you to make the underlying ground as realistic as possible so that it can stand on its own without ground cover, and the easiest way to do that is to use the real thing. In comparison to the relative ease of using dirt for realism, grass is significantly more difficult to get right. The historic method for making grass was literally as simple as saving the sawdust from the benchwork phase, dyeing it green, and sifting it uniformly over the layout to make an unrealistic green eggshell of a hillside. We've moved forward quite a bit since then, but grass foam material is also rife for similar abuse. Made from chewed-up seat cushion foam material and dyed various colors, ground foam, as it is called, is an improvement by adding a mode of texture. For the purposes of beginnerhood, since this is very easy and usually a sufficient method, applying ground foam is done much the same way as dirt. Sift the ground foam onto the landscape, gently spray it with a mist of isopropanol, and pipette down a layer of matte medium to affix it in place. However, for realistic results, this simplicity is deceptive. For one, do not, as with dirt, completely cover the landscape with grass. While it is tempting to turn everything into a manicured Victorian strolling garden, this is hardly ever found outside of home lawns and parks, and even then only in the most assiduously manicured examples. Nature, however, is not a golf course. In reality, grass is most often heterogeneous in coverage, species, coloration, and texture. Basically, in all cases outside of a football pitch or an open tall grass meadow, your ground foam should be applied thinly enough to at least see a hint of the dirt you so carefully made beneath it. Be cognizant that grass is often not found beneath trees or in shadows, in areas of shifting rocks or dirt like hillsides, rock slides, or mud, or on compacted dirt such as on trails or driveways. I've said it before and I'll say it again, your best tool in making scenery, especially grass, is to just go on a hike. Give planet Earth a walking audit. Observe what real nature looks like deep in the woods and apply your lessons to your layout. Where you do choose to proceed with ground foam, vary its coloration and texture. A simple way to do this is to take a three to five different grades, colors, and manufacturers of ground foam and mix them together into a desired color and use this as somewhat of a, a grass base coat of sorts, applying a thin layer wherever the grass would be. Then, once that's down and dried, go back over the grass with an additional layer, this time of individual grass colors to vary the microclimate. Lighter greens in area of direct sunlight, darker greens in shadows. Same technique, but different application. Lighter greens represent new growth and can be best dusted over the entire layout during springtime, and darker greens are established vegetation that is much more suited to late summer. There are also different colors of ground foam for other purposes. Reds, whites, bright greens, blues, and purples work well for fields of wildflowers. Also, red, yellows, and oranges suit fall foliage, but it's usually too complicated for beginners as it can usually garishly Crayola a layout if done poorly, whereas a failed green at the end of the day is mostly still just a green. Finally, vary your grass density based on the local hydrology. There will be less grass on hillsides due to eroding soil or dry conditions, and there will be much denser grass in low areas where the ground is perpetually wet. Actually, to that end, there are even fine ground foams in brown and black to represent moist dirt that has been recently unearthed, say by a shovel, or near a small rivulet or mud pit or the like. I would, though, caution over using these uh, mud foams, as they can make jarring color changes that may be out of step with the color of the dried dirt layout base.
Instead, a nifty trick to achieve wet dirt is to use clear nail polish lacquer to give a permanent wet sheen to the dirt you've already put down. And if it backfires and looks awful, go ahead and just add more dirt to cover it up. No love lost there. The one remaining note on ground foam is that, whilst it may appear okay for dirt to bead, flow, and form rivulets or mini rivers, it is definitely not okay for grass to do the same. If the grass starts to float and flow while you're isopropanoling or matte mediuming the grass, quickly go back and cover it with another thin layer of grass while the glue is still wet to hide this, in this case, unrealistic vegetation flow. Instead of simple ground foam, a grass-making technique which has excelled in popularity over the past two decades is using static grass. In the briefest principle, static grasses use battery-connected applicators, static electricity, and thin air to complete a circuit from the ground to the applicator through statically charged straight fibers, thereby pseudo-magnetically erecting them on end. A caveat, this is one of a very few things which I've never actually done firsthand myself in this hobby, largely because I've been so mercurial in layout scope, and even more admittedly sloppy in track laying, as to continually abandon projects right after the track is down. But I know the general principle well enough, and this is such a powerful and burgeoning aspect of the hobby that I think it's nonetheless worth paying attention to, even for beginners. Though I haven't said it enough, but especially in this case, defer to factory manuals, YouTube tutorials, trial and error, and your own accumulated experience. But all that being the case, as far as being a beginner and getting your footing on the subject, static grassing goes thusly. Firstly, you need a static grass applicator. Unfortunately, besides building one yourself, which as far as I'm concerned is well beyond the gumption of most beginners save those professionally employed as electrical engineers, the options are really only expensive professional machines in the greater than 200-ish dollar range. There are a few cheapskate companies which purportedly sell static active plastic bottles, but frankly, you get what you pay for and these don't cost much. Avoid them. The static grass applicator has fundamentally four parts. A barrel for storing grass fibers, a battery for storing electrons, a mesh metal connecting the barrel to the outside world through which the grass fibers fall whilst being imparted a charge, and a grounding device, usually either a pin or a sufficiently heavy metal stand connected to the applicator by a wire and ferrying electrical current back to the battery. You're taking it from the battery to the ground to be ferried back via thin air in the mesh. I don't know, I'm a self-taught electrical engineer, and by engineer I mean of choo-choos. I didn't get a degree in this, forgive me for any inaccuracies. To apply static grass, load the applicator barrel with your color and length of choice of grass fiber. Color mixing is less important here. Thoroughly wet a square decimeter or few-ish working area with matte medium via pipette. Place the grounding pin or tower on the wetted working area. Turn on the applicator and start gently shaking the device 10 to 30 centimeters above the ground. You should start to notice the fibers standing upright and bending towards wherever you're holding the applicator. If the fibers are falling flat and not standing upright, troubleshoot your electrical connection and start again. But at the end of it all, you should have a field of near-ish vertically standing grass fibers. The realism of this method is particularly unparalleled, and the results look fantastic. I would normally discuss simpler, cheaper, more beginnery alternatives like the historic method of brush painting fake furs cut to the size of a field, but when it comes to static grass, there really is no contest. If you're a straight-up beginner building your first layout alofted from a Christmas tree, do what you can with the ground foam. But if you're a trained fanatic who's guaranteed to be in the hobby for at least a little while, buy a static grass applicator as soon as you can. You won't regret it. I hear that the applicators from Knock, Scenic Express, and Woodland Scenics are best. 
a few further notes on static grass. Unlike ground foam, static grass is usually much more transparent, so you want to be much more thorough and comprehensive in your dirt application on the area underneath. Alternatively, some people lay a thin layer of ground foam before applying the static grass to help obscure the dirt and stretch the static fibers a little farther. You can also combine ground foam and static grass in the other direction. Once the static grass is down and dried, you can go over it with a light dusting of ground foam, possibly even out of the applicator, and add texture or different colors to the tops of the grasses for, say, seed pods, flowers, sunlight glint, or apical meristems. Another technique, after your initial application of static grass, you can also do additional rounds to lengthen the fibers. Even more uniquely, you can do different colors for different heights. For example, it is to my understanding that many grasses have green stalks, but more tan stalks on the top end during the summer. Ergo, one or two rounds of green fibers, then a third of tan fibers makes a hyper-realistic grass phenotype. Obviously, shorter fibers do well with smaller scales, longer with larger. Finally, use damp paper towels to cover areas which you'd rather not find statically active fibers, such as, as usual, overtop tracks, roads, or buildings. The next layer up from the ground, and the final layer I will discuss in this abridged episode, is bushes. For trees to be discussed next time, there are multiple ways of depicting foliage, but for bushes, there really are only two ways to proceed. The simplest is to use clump foliage, predominantly available from Woodland Scenics and, I think, Scenicing. This is basically the same thing as ground foam, just macerated to a much larger final size, usually in 1-4 to four centimeter clumps. Application is pretty simple. Just pick up a clump, put a dot of white glue on the base, invert it, and stick on your layout. As straightforward as it is, clump foliage is also the most problematic. Most clumps are of fully uniform color, fully opaque, and look decidedly cartoonish, especially if mixed in with only two or three colors of bush of extremely different color palette. To get around this, it might be wiser to take a few bush clumps and roll them through finer ground foam of varying textures and colors first, or to dust them with a layer of ground foam later after planting. As always, darkest greens on the inside, lightest greens on the outside to simulate shadows and growth buds. Probably a better alternative is to use fine-leaf foliage. While it's been a while for me, and other manufacturers may have come out with alternatives, Nock and Woodland Scenics each have a version of more realistic bush material. Despite my lumping them together, they do look somewhat different from each other. Nock's product has scale-ish sized individual leaves, whereas Woodland Scenics is more a very fine ground foam somehow applied to twiggy structures. Application of detailed bushes is similar. Tear off a good-looking clump, glue it in place, and then maybe go over it with more colors or textures of ground foam later. The one caveat is that these products are significantly more expensive, so it's probably better to bush your layout much more thinly at first, then slowly go back and add foliage as time and money become available, rather than buying all of the bushes that you need for your entire layout at once. For both simple and complicated bush methods, it is rare that you see uniform sheets of foliage beneath an opaque forest canopy. I recommend placing all bushes either clumped together in a field or at the edge of a forest, or wherever at least partially shielded from the elements, such as at the base of a tree, log, building, rock, or ledge. Of all scenery techniques, bushes are probably the easiest to overdo and best used sparingly and judiciously. I hope 
hope that with this episode, I have helped you to add dirt and low foliage to your layout, finally bringing your layout to life after a mere 2,170 days since we started this journey together. If you want to join my currently dead Facebook community, you can, but fuck the zap. Instead, if you have a question or comment, would like to make a donation, or would like to learn more, please use the show's website at www.bgtmrring.org. If you like the show, please give me a good review on iTunes and subscribe to the podcast feed. If you really like the show, please consider becoming a patron, as it helps me to defer the costs of equipment and website hosting. If you did not like the show, do not say anything and contemplate the thought crime that you have committed. This podcast was written, recorded, and produced on the ancestral lands of the Susquehannock tribe, Maori people, and the bartenders Yeoman and Igusti. I would like to thank them for their stewardship of central Pennsylvania, New Zealand, and the Eden Bar on the Celebrity Edge. And now, as your reward for listening through my closing spiel, your modeler's vocabulary word for this episode is... Plant. An interlocking system at a junction, usually controlled by a tower and tower operator. This has been BGT Episode 21, Scenery Part 2, Petersphere Part 1, Dirt and Foliage. Thank you very much for listening, and happy modeling.